Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to Gary and Peter Hart and me and what's it called, Gary? Pete and Gary's Military History. I thought it was Gary Bain's Military History. That's what you said it was. It will be if you carry on the way you're carrying on, getting dates wrong and all sorts of history. You're the historian. So you say. What what was yesterday's date? uh, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Damn! Uh, 21st of March. Well done. Right, now today we're going to do a podcast called Second Eeps Soldiers. And this is a particularly exciting one for me because buried within it are two of the most dramatic uh, incidents that I was ever told about uh, in, in, in my oral so history So these, these are interviews that you did while you were the Imperial War Museum, yeah? Yes. So um, I'm assuming you mean Jack Dorgan and George Ashurst. That those are the two, and... and Buried in the in, in the account of uh, Second Eeps that they give, uh, there's just some amazing stuff that uh, just I can remember sitting opposite and thinking, "Wow!" So I hope I hope everyone's going to enjoy this. There'll be very little messing about because I'm afraid this is not a, a funny podcast, if you know what I mean. Uh, so you didn't get round to interviewing Lieutenant Speyer then? No, I didn't. I couldn't be bothered. Oh. Right, so uh, so where are we uh, now? This is a, a concentrate on the side. It's called Second Deep Soldiers because it's going to deal with the soldiers. So let's briefly, quickly set the scene so you know what we're talking about. The Germans had sent a lot of their reserves to the Eastern Front. They were pondering how 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 to, how they could sort of carry out a major operation, how to break the British and all French uh, trench lines, and they were looking around at this, and he thought he. He th- Falkenhayn, who was the commander-in-chief uh, or chief of general staff, decided uh, he didn't have enough ammunition for a conventional offensive, so he thought he'd try out the new German secret weapon of poisonous gas. Now, this is also, Pete, because there had been a, a, a lot of pressure coming, uh, particularly from Hindenburg and Ludendorff, about their ability to win the war on the Eastern Front. So it had been resolved to concentrate their efforts there, hadn't it? That's it. That's why he didn't have many reserves, and that's why they res- he resorts to uh, poisonous gas. 
Um, so at 1700, on the 22nd of April, 1915, he launches an attack by his 4th Army at Ypres. Uh, they employ some 168 tonnes of chlorine. I didn't know gas. That, that, seeing as gas doesn't weigh much, that must be an awful lot of it, I'd have thought. Launched from thousands, thousands, Gary, thousands. Or is that the weight of the bottles that they were in? No, I don't, I, don't, I don't know. Thousands of steel bottles, yeah, were used. Uh, and it's a cloud attack. So they just open the nozzles and the dreadly, deadly gas. So they're reliant on the wind, then? They to, are. They to have to take so that in the direction they want it to go. <clears throat> that's it. That's, that's going to be a limiting factor as to when they can do it. Now, both the Germans and French had tested uh, poisonous gas before, not to much effect. Uh, but this is going to be a markedly different. It's often called the first gas uh, attack. It's not, but it it's is the that. first major gas attack that anyone notices, sort of thing. The Germans, um, why were they able to advance into the gas, Gary? What uh, what little advantage did they have on, over the French and British? Well, they thought about this. So um, they were equipped with simple respirators. Um, but despite probably a, a fairly large amount of warning, the intelligence that... Uh, was provided to the Allies, they failed to take any notice at all, preferring Silly to believe that the allies. Germans wouldn't stoop so low. No, the Germans would never stoop so low. Uh, these things. Yeah, <clears throat> gas is, uh, the use of gas had been expressly forbidden by the Hague Convention of 1907. So, <clears throat> the end result of all this is that uh, the men of two French divisions, 45th Algerian and 87th Territorial Division, they're in the northern sector of the Ypres salient, they're caught completely unawares, they've got no protective masks, and the chlorine just invades their bodies, uh, burning, choking, and destroying their lungs. Now, uh, you've got a, a quote to, from the other side, from Lieutenant Speyer, who's going to set the scene. Now, we both want, as usual, we don't know much about Lieutenant Lieutenant Speyer, but uh, what we do know is uh, that he was with the 23rd Reserve Infantry Regiment. And this quote comes from the wonderful Jack Sheldon and his invaluable book, The German Army on the Western Front, 1915. Part of that fantastic series of books that does all our work for us in many ways. Uh, so uh, uh, a metaphorical tip of the hat to uh, Jack Sheldon. Now, you're going to be Lieutenant Speyer, so tell, tell me, what, set the scene for us about the gas attack. In the early part of 1915... Mysterious figures moved through the trenches carrying even more mysterious steel cylinders. Some thirsty individuals thought, that's great, they're obviously opening a bar and have already brought the oxygen forward to dispense the beer. <laughs> Sorry. Unfortunately, this never appeared. Sadly, the engineers began instead to dig deep holes in our beautiful trenches. The cylinders were placed in them, then carefully covered up with sandbags. It was then that we received more exact information. The cylinders contained a gas which attacked human mucous membranes and which would be released on the enemy when the wind was favourable. We were issued with protective equipment and made all necessary preparations for the attack. Unfortunately, the correct gentle northeast wind was a long time coming. We were resting in reserve when the wind became favourable. We were alerted several times, but on each occasion, Dense fog interfered with artillery observation, so we had to return to our billets. Then we were called forward once more during the night of the 21st, 22nd of April, and this time it looked as though it was going to be serious. 
Now, uh, um, they, 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 they wait ready all day. And then uh, at 1600 on 22nd of April, uh, the German bombardment, the artillery bombardment, bursts forward, uh, bursts out. Uh, uh, and that's followed an hour later by something new, something terrible. Again, you're going to be spare. I looked up and wondered what the strange rushing sound was. My glance settled on the foremost trenches. And Donna Vetter, it really had started. Thick, yellowish, green clouds, <coughs> excuse me, fraught with danger, rolled towards the enemy trenches. For a short time, the enemy did not react, but then they opened fire with everything they had. Barely had the first enemy shells burst, however, than our artillery brought down fire like the hammers of hell. We could hardly hear ourselves speak. The enemy fire faded away, weaker and weaker, and almost stopped completely. It's interesting that the different accounts, because one says the artillery came before the gas, and the other says the other way around. Interesting. Then the German infantry attack, and uh, Speyer's in one of the later waves, and he says this. Just as the cylinders had emptied, the first assault waves rushed forward. With laughing eyes and joyful shouts of hurrah, Lieutenant Ole and his men raced past and leapt into the first enemy trench. Some of our comrades were killed in the process, others were wounded, but this German surge was not to be halted. Soon we found ourselves in the enemy trenches, and we could only laugh as we saw the pathetic nature of the makeshift defences, for which we had showed so much respect during the past six months. We had spoken of concreted dugouts, of mines and electrified obstacles. There was no sign of any such thing. Just a wall of earth with a minimal wire of obstacle and a few planks of wood, hardly sufficient to keep the rain out. That was the lot. <laughs> that must have been a, a bit of a surprise. Now, uh, where the gas, the main area of the gas, the centre of the gas attack, there's almost no opposition, as Speyer goes on to say. Our gunnery and the gas had had a good effect on the assorted races which faced us. Many dead lay around, and all those who <coughs> were unable to run like the wind surrendered to us without resisting. One Indian, probably a French colonial soldier, was so afraid that he had jumped into a water-filled crater formed by one of our 210mm shells. Nothing could be seen of him other than his head, which floated like a lotus blossom on the surface. He looked at us, his face contorted with fear, but all we could do was laugh. He laughed too then. Then shivering with the cold, he crawled out of his bath. Yeah, uh, it was my... Uh, it, uh, the, it, uh, Mordak didn't say he was a French... Uh, sorry, Speyer didn't say he was a French colonial soldier. I, I did uh, in the notes. Sorry, I didn't make that clear at all. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, he just calls him an Indian, but there were no Indians in that area. Uh, uh, so he's probably a French soldier. He would, soldier it was a colonial but... division, so it will have, it will have been a, a Zouave or a... So they could have put that in square brackets, really. I could, could have done. It would have been so much more efficient for you. It and, would have been, And, yeah. and caused... Much less trouble. Uh, I, I feel guilty. Now, who's our second soldier? Well, of course, it's a Frenchman. And this, yeah, is, so, this is Colonel Henry Mordac. Now, you're going to tell us a bit about him, because I've got a lot of reading to do, I notice. Yeah, you, yes, you have. Bastard. You? <laughs> <laughs> well, Colonel Henry Mordac was born on the 12th of January, 1868. He had an interesting career as an army officer before 1914, He'd served in Algeria before joining the 1st Foreign Regiment of the Foreign Legion in French Indochina in 1893. He'd even engaged in anti-piracy operations in the Tonkin region. 
He's uh, also an army sabre ah, champion. On kid. guard. That's sabre noises. And then after a period as an intelligence officer, he trained as a staff officer at the École de Guerre in Paris, or Paris, as the French say. Now, after periods as a chief of staff, he also becomes a renowned staff instructor. And at the time uh, of, of, that we're looking at, 1915, he was commanding the 90th Infantry Brigade, Pete. Now, you're going to be him. I am. Um, uh, uh, and this is uh, how he, he, he's back at his headquarters with 90th Brigade when he, when, he, when he gets the news. So he says this. I was just about to set off when about 5.30pm I received a telephone call from Ville Velex. Where did he get a call from, Pete? Ville Velex. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a French name. <laughs> oh, Ville Valet. Uh, give over, lad. Commander of the 1st Rifle Regiment, coughing and croaking to such an extent that his voice was barely understandable. He reported to me that he was being attacked heavily and that the monstrous yellow pillars of smoke uh, had been seen coming from the, uh, the, sorry, uh, from the German trenches and spreading out to cover the entire area. His men had begun to leave their trenches and were racing to the rear to escape, though many were suffocating and collapsing. I must admit that when I heard these words and the tone of his voice, <laughs> I wondered for a moment if the commander had lost his head or been gripped by panic. Certainly the thought of a gas attack never entered my head. I should never have believed it possible, and I had never heard a whisper of any such thing ever since my arrival in Bel Belgium. Now, he doesn't remain in any doubt for very long, Pete, does he? Because <laughs> no. he soon has two more telephone calls of an equally desperate nature. And uh, he goes on to say this. <clears throat> Almost at the same moment, I heard the sound of rapid rifle fire, accompanied by the roar of the guns. Quite clearly, clearly, something unusual was going on, and it could well be an attack. Almost simultaneously, I received another telephone call, this time, this time from Defabri, one of the commanding officers of 1st Rifle Regiment, who spoke in the same agitated way as him, <laughs> Ville Valet. He told me that he would have to evacuate his command post. It was impossible to breathe. Entire sections had been knocked out, either through suffocation or because they had fallen victim to the artillery fire which the enemy was bringing down on the reserve positions. The positions could be held no longer. They were caught between gas and shell fire. Finally, I received another call from Commander Villevelo. Everyone is collapsing around me. I'm leaving my command post. I could not catch the end of his sentence. Then the telephone went dead. Now, it's at this point that Mordak decides to go forward and, and actually have a look and see for himself what's happening. So he grabs his horse and he gallops off. And he alerts all the brigade and he's called for the support of the 91st Brigade as well. Can I just ask, from your military experience, uh, would you have galloped towards this, uh, this this scene of devastation and gas? and the thing? I was a Lance Corporal, Pete. The only thing I galloped towards was the Nathy. Yeah, well, that's fair enough. <laughs> Sorry, I'm picturing you galloping towards Naffy now. Charge! So now, um, um, <coughs> right, so all that goes on to say, Pete, you've got a lot to do here. I have. I felt sure that the attack was serious. Our troops, both territorial and African, were flooding to the rear on all sides. Beyond the canal, individual yellowish clouds could be seen 
Then, having proceeded to about three to 400 metres from Bosenga, we experienced a sharp prickling sensation in our noses and throats. Our ears began to roar, breathing became difficult, and we were overcome by the unbearable stench of chlorine. We had to dismount because the horses, suffering, refused to either gallop or trot. Sensible horses, I would have Sensible said. Sensible horses, yeah. We arrived at Bosinga on foot and headed for the ridges. The sights to our front were pitiful, really appalling. Everywhere, men were running for their lives in complete disorder. Africans, riflemen, zouaves, territorials and gunners without their weapons. Holding the skirts of their open coats, their collars ripped open, they raced like madmen for safety. Crying out loudly for water, coughing up blood, some rolled on the ground in agony, making desperate attempts to breathe. Before my eyes, I shall, before my eyes, I shall forever have the sight of an African who, in a state of collapse, cried out for milk. Then, seeing me, called out, "Colonel, these blackguards have poisoned us!" In short, it was a scene like a scene from Dante's Inferno. Although the Italian poet never described anything so appalling in his masterpiece. Since the beginning of the war, I'd seen panic in Lorraine and around Arras, but never before had such a scene of utter desperation as unfolded in front of me. It was out of the question to halt the fleeing troops. We did not even try. They were no longer soldiers, these poor fleeing beings who had been driven mad at a single stroke. It was the same all along both banks of the canal, where masses of distraught men sought relief from their agonies in the water. Wow. Wow. Just wow. Wow. Yeah. Uh, What a great account. Uh, He's an interesting chap. Look him up. Uh, We haven't got time for any more about it, but he has an interesting post-war career as well. Now, the next one is a Canadian. Now, the Canadians were to the right of the French, more towards the centre of the salient. Uh, And when the French quite naturally broke and ran the first canadian division of the recently arrived canadian expeditionary force that they they shuffle across and bent back to try and block the gap that i mean it threatens the whole salient doesn't it the whole salient uh now the french front the canadian frontline troops holding the line don't suffer too much but as they move across and as their reserves move up they do suffer and you're going to be gary private William Underwood, who's the 14th Royal Montreal Regiment uh, Battalion. Uh, he's in 3rd Brigade, 1st Canadian Division. So tell us what happens to him. We saw this green cloud come towards us, just slowly rolling along the ground. And behind it, a grey mass of Germans in grey uniforms and some kind of respirator. They looked grotesque. And we wondered, just what is this? This isn't conventional. We just felt terribly bitter. Nobody's going to come through here, and if we have to, we'll die here fighting. Our officer, who was wounded, told us to get out and meet them hand-to-hand for Canada. We felt pretty mad about the whole thing, and no so-and-so is going to come through here, even though we weren't equipped to hold them. Then, one of our boys, who was a chemist, got a smell of this chlorine gas and advised us to urinate on our handkerchiefs or pieces of putty or anything that saved our lungs from getting the gas. Well, we knew that we just had to hold there because up the front line were our own boys who hadn't broken and ran and there was this great gap with the Germans pouring through. We just couldn't leave. So we dug in with our trenching tools and hung on. Now, I want to make it quite clear that uh, 
that they hadn't had the the worst of it. The French had the worst of it. The the, the two divisions, and that's why they ran. Uh, the, the the Canadians get much less gas. But however, by dint of their courage and, and determinations in terrible circumstances, the Canadians do manage to to uh, hold. But there's another reason why the the, the Canadians are able to to hold. What's that, Gary? Well, there's a paucity of German reserves near the Eeps front to take advantage of the success that they're, they're actually having. Because they've, they've gone off to the Eastern Front, most of them. That, that, the that hence the use of that of gas. So, uh, well done, Canada. And, uh, and, and we, 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 uh, we, they, they did really well that in the next couple of days, I think. Now, the next one... It terrifying to have to stand there. I mean, it, it must have been really terrifying. Unbelievable. I can't imagine it. I can't imagine it. Nothing worse than being deprived of the ability to breathe and put in agony, of course. Uh, and now having the, a fight. The, now, the next one is uh, Jack Dorgan. Now, Jack lived in uh, uh, Nottingham. I, I had, he, he did 18 hours. I had to go there. <laughs> I seemed to be living in Nottingham for a while. I was going backwards and forwards. Um, he was born on the 12th of July, 1893. He was a wonderful old boy. He was brought up in Choppington and Ashington uh, in Northumberland, just north of uh, uh, Newcastle. Uh, he attended Choppington Colliery School and then started work uh, underground in Choppington in the collieries. Uh, Ashington Colliery from the age of uh, 14, Gary. Um, has your son started work yet? No. How old is he? 14. <laughs> Actually, reverse the numbers pretty soon. Uh, yeah, uh, pre-war, he's a very keen member of the Boy Scouts, which had started up in about 1908. Very, yeah, he was keen. very popular at that time, wasn't it? He were, it was. Uh, Baden Powell had started that up, and he joined the Seventh Battalion, Northumberland Fusiliers, at Ashington Drill Hall in 1911, pre-war. Uh, so he's duly called up at the outbreak of war, and he volunteers for overseas services. Now, the British were moving up their reserves to bolster Smith Dorian's Second Army, which is the, the army that's been attacked. Uh, at, and at my favourite. And your favourite. Of favorite. all armies. Yeah, you, you love the Second Army, don't you? Despite the fact mm. it's not as good as the First under Douglas Haig. Mm. Uh, and uh, he's, they've got their responsibility for, for most of the Ypres sailing, the, the French haven't. And there was a significant number of territorial uh, units come in. Uh, forward and one of them is the 50th Northumbrian Division and they'd been sent out to Western Front uh, in April and they basically were they, they were for training behind the line in the Ypres area and then they would be fed into the line with regular units to learn what was what how it all worked um, however uh, the, the, the trouble with it is that they get to the area around uh, 22nd of April of course the attack comes so they, they, they move forward really quickly, uh, first to Poppering and then marching on from there. They bus by the, to, to Poppering, those buses, one of them which used to be in the war museum, and then uh, the old Bill, and then they uh, they, they go forward to Epes. And this is uh, Jack Dorgan, Lance Corporal Jack Dorgan, a man of your stature, uh, 1st, 7th Northumberland Fusiliers, uh, says what, what it was like as they approach Epes. There in the distance, the sky was lit up and we could see the German shells dropping on the city of Epes. It was not known to the British soldiers as Epes, it was known as Wipers. 11 miles it was between Poppering and Epes, and that 11 miles was full of refugees coming out of Epes, making their way to Poppering. Mainly old men, women and children. Never a sound, just mooching along without a word. Their spirits seemed to be broken. They had all kinds of wheelbarrows, and they carried mostly bedding and personal things. Children as well were carrying as much as they could. 
I don't know how they manage struggling along past us. We arrived at Eeps in the marketplace. Across the cobbled square was the cloth hall blazing all in ruins. The shells were dropping and shrapnel was flying all over. We thought, well, this is war. Now, we've been there, of course, uh, on, on, a, on a Historians Do Drink tour. We've actually been in that square. We stayed at, is it Tommy's, Tommy's, Tommy's no. Cafe? Uh, we stayed there. And it's amazing to think this is where... The this, old Tom. The old Tom, that's it. And, and uh, <clears throat> it's amazing to think that that's actually where this occurred. Uh, now, normally, they'd have had this bit, well, they've been attached to regulars for continuation training, if you like, a modern term. Um, uh, we, uh, uh, introductory spells in the trenches, get to, you know, show them the ropes. Well, they them the ropes, isn't it, Pete? They, and, and they don't get that. They don't get that at all. There's no time for it, is there? There's no time at all. They're just thrown into the line. Now, uh, there's more gas attacks, and the Germans have broken right through and captured the village of St. Julian. Uh, again, you've been there. A lot of us have been to St. Julian. Uh, Not far and, from and this will be the focus of the first attack by the 50th Division, uh, which culminates in a frontal assault by 149th Brigade, which is launched on the afternoon of 26th of April. So we've skipped on a couple of days here, uh, two or three, four days. Um, this attack is supposed to be the first uh, made by a territorial brigade in the Great War. Uh, do you think they're ready for it? No, you can't pretend they're ready. They're raw territorials. They're not ready for the ordeal that they're going to have to face. They move forward under light shell fire, and that must have in itself have been terrifying because you could put the word light in front of it, but it's still shell fire. And they move through with a Wiltshire towards St. Julian. Uh, and it's not a hill, it's very slightly rising ground up at Pilkin Ridge, isn't it? Now, this is what Jack Dorgan says. These quotes are amazing. There's no silly accents, there's no nothing, because th some of these bits are difficult to read, and... Uh, Gary's been brave in volunteering to do it. As we went going forward, men were being shot down, wounded and killed. Sergeant Pitt lay in the middle of a field shouting for help, swearing and tearing, wanting help. You could see chaps had gone forward to help him because they were there lying dead in the field alongside. Yet he kept shouting for somebody to help him. We just had to pass on. Our objective was St Julian. The stretcher bearers were running around our wounded away, leaving the dead for later. A batch of us lay behind a hedge, resting. We never saw an enemy, never saw anybody to shoot at. A shell dropped right in amongst us. When I pulled myself together, I found myself lying in a shell hole. There was one other soldier who, like me, was unhurt, but two more were heavily wounded, so we shouted for stretcher bearers. The other chap says to me, we're not all here, Jack. I climbed out of the shell hole and there was two of our comrades lying just a few yards from the shell hole. They had been blown out by the same shell. So I climbed out of the shell hole and found two more of our comrades lying just a few yards from the shell hole. They had their legs blown off. All I could see was their thigh bones. I would always remember their white thigh bones. The rest of their legs were gone. Private Jackie Oliver was one of them. He never recovered consciousness. I shouted back to the fellows behind me, Tell Reedy Oliver his brother's been wounded. So Reedy came along and stood looking at his brother, lying there, no legs, and he died a few minutes later. But the other, Private Bob Young, was conscious right to the last. I lay alongside of him and said, Can I do anything for you, Bob? He said, 
straighten my legs, Jack. But he had no legs. I touched the bones and that satisfied him. Then he said, get my wife's photograph out of my breast pocket. I took the photograph out and put it in his hands. He lay there. He couldn't move, couldn't lift a hand, couldn't lift a finger. But he held his wife's photograph on his chest. And that's how Bob Young died. Can you imagine sitting opposite Jack Dorgan and listening to that story? It was uh, quite an amazing experience. Um, later on, uh, Jack Dorgan goes on to talk about how he took, he took considerable offence. There's a book written by a captain called Captain Watson Armstrong. And, uh, and Jack really didn't like the way that, uh, that these deaths were reported. And you've, you've got that quote, because it's quite interesting uh, what he says. Captain Watson Armstrong writes about that incident where Bob Young and Jackie Oliver were killed. He writes in his book, Bob Young, I understand, was singing Tipperary when he died, which of course was nonsense. I was there when Bob Young died. He died with his wife's photograph in his hand. He had no thoughts of singing Tipperary. His voice was getting fainter and fainter all the time until he pegged out. What the captain was trying to imply was that the morale of the Northumberlands was so high, but it didn't happen that way. Wow. Uh, anyway, the advance splutters out. They, they get nowhere. They don't really get even past the, what existed of the British front line. It's one of these terrible advances where it's a, it, they don't know what they're doing. And all, all the casualties, all this suffering... Uh, it, it, it's, it's just for nothing. They're going nowhere. They're achieving nothing. Um, you, you, well, we looked up the casualties. The Northumberland Battalion suffer 1,954 casualties in this, in this disaster. Uh, nearly two-thirds of the brigade's strength is lost. Uh, and it's all for nothing. And, uh, and th this is a really sad bit here from Jack Dorgan. Today, on the Meningate Memorial, their names are recorded as having no known graves. I've seen those names many, many times since the war. Jackie Oliver and Bob Young's names are there. When I've stood and looked at them, I've sometimes thought, my name could have been there as well. I think, how lucky am I to be able to be there 70 years after? It, 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 it's an amazing piece of oral history. Jack Dorgan was a fantastic... <clears throat> a fantastic informant and he had a very distinctive voice now obviously uh, it's it's a very deep Northumbrian accent I urge you to listen to him he's on the Imperial War Museum if you type in Jack Dorgan and IWM you'll find it and there's uh, 18 hours of it a very distinctive voice amazing man and uh, what a story and can you imagine stood there and I've stood there and tried to see them look up and my eyesight's not very good uh, and think about those names and and and, uh, and uh, as people say they're a long time dead uh, your mates are killed and then 70 years later you're standing there looking at it thinking of all they the are but he, he makes a really great point Pete and and you know you look at a name on a carved on a piece of stone but that's that's a, a human being they had lives they had wives children brothers sisters mothers they they, they were whole people and he's, he makes that point really 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 well that is one of the most moving pieces i've ever read yeah and I'm, I'm glad you volunteered to do it i'll be honest with you 
so who, so on to another another piece of great oral history uh, that that uh, it's not. Remember, I'm not saying I've done great oral history. It's the men who do the recording. I'm just the idiot with the tape recorder. And this is two Lancashire Fusiliers, and uh, their stories intertwine. So we put them together, don't we? And this I think is, you're being a bit unfair calling yourself a, a, an idiot with a tape recorder. I think it's better to say you're an idiot with a digital recorder. Thank you. But uh, sadly, when I recorded these people, we had Ewer tape recorders. <laughs> Mr. Mr. Clever Clugs. It was bloody heavy at all. It was the size of a suitcase. Now, this is uh, George Ashurst, uh, Private George Ashurst, uh, a very well-known veteran. He wrote a book called My Bit, which, uh, which uh, I, it's very cheap on the internet, buy it. And he did about 18 hours, well, 15, to, I don't know how long he did, I can't remember. And Victor Hawkins. Now, he's uh, Second Lieutenant Victor Hawkins. They're both Second Lancashire Fusiliers. Uh, he, I, as I remember it, he wasn't recorded by me, he was rec or, or anybody I know. He was recorded by the BBC, and it's part of the BBC Great War series. So perhaps you can look that up. Uh, now, uh, uh, tell me a bit about uh, George Ashurst, Gary. Uh, well, he's born in Tontine, near Wigan, on the 3rd of March, 1895. He leaves school at 13, and he went to work as an office boy at the Douglas Bank Colliery. So not underground, that's interesting. Seemingly not. Um, he joined the Special Reserve, and he did six months training with the 3rd Lancashire Fusiliers at Berry Barracks in 1912. So again, before the war, Pete. He then returned to work cleaning engines in the Wigan Locomotive Department. And every summer he was obligated to attend a, a special reserve training camp and he was aware that he would be liable to be called up in the event of any war. And as such, he was indeed called up to report to Berry Barracks in August 1914. And in December 1914, he sent out with a draft to join the second Lancashire Fusiliers, who at that time were in billets at Le Bizet on the Western Front. Ooh. So that's now you're that. going to tell us a bit about Second Lieutenant Victor Hawkins. Please. I am. He was born. We looked him up on the internet. This isn't from the War Museum files. He was born on the fourth of August, eighteen ninety-six, uh, at Preston in Dorset. Uh, educated at Clifton College, Bristol. We know someone else who was educated at Clifton College, Bristol. Who was that, Gary? See if you can remember. I don't know. Douglas Haig. Haig. Yeah, there you are. Sorry, I did that too quickly. You were just about to get it. The, the, I was, yes. Uh, they then went to Sandhurst. Uh, we know somebody else who went. Well, we know a lot of people who went to Sandhurst. <laughs> we know loads of people who went to Sandhurst. Some of them are very nice. Yeah. And he was commissioned in 1914 into the Lancashire Fusilier. So he also is joining the, the regiment fairly lately. Now, so what's happening? Uh, well, can you set the scene? Because I've got a lot of reading to do. Well, on the 30th of April... Uh, Private George Hashurst and the 2nd Lancashire Fusiliers were moved forward into the Eaps area as part of the 4th Division and they're there to relieve the Canadians on the left of the British line. Now at the same time, the British were getting ready for a tactical withdrawal from uh, the exposed salient centred around Zonabek to a, a more secure line which was about two miles from Eaps. Now by this time the risk of gas attack was completely understood but the palliative measures available were pretty minimal. Yeah, I'm not sure it's completely understood by the likes of George, George Asher. I'm going to read this quote from him. Second Lancashire Fusiliers. 
They tell us that we may be gassed when we go in the trenches. NCOs will be issued with so much red flannelette, a yard or two, and so much elastic. We, we had to, to fold the flannelette two or three times, attach the elastic, and put it round our heads, over our mouth and nose if the gas came. I've got an issue. It, it was in the bottom of my haversack. Oh, I never bothered. We never cut it up <laughs> or shared it. They'll not send any gas. They'll not gas us, the lad said. They never bothered, and I never bothered. Hmm. Hmm. I like a nice bit of red flannelette. You do. Oh well, I'll go. I'll go on to tell you. So the next uh, German assault it presages another uh, gas attack, uh, and and now we've got. These accounts in the sound archive from uh, Ashurst and and uh, Hawkins. And what I like <coughs> about these two accounts is they're completely different. One is a British hero, and the other one not quite so heroic. And I I'm, I side strongly with George Ashurst, who I fear is in the not quite so heroic. Let's first have the true British hero, and this is Second Lieutenant Victor Hawkins, which you're going to read. At about quarter to five, I went along to my company headquarters to have a cup of tea. I'd only just poured out my tea when the sentry in front called out, Will you come and look, sir? So I got up to look, and out of the German trenches, about six to eight hundred yards away, great jets of yellow cloud were shooting up into the air like water out of a hose. As the gas went up into the air out of these jets, it formed together into a cloud and dropped onto the ground and started rolling towards us with a slight breeze behind it. We knew what it was. I didn't get my cup of tea. We had to get busy. A man called Jackie Lynn, who was a machine gunner with us, getting his gun out of its proper position and putting it up on top of the parapet and getting up behind it, without putting his so-called gas mask on. I got back to my platoon as quick as I could, warning all the men on the way to get up. The only thing to do was to try and get these flannelette things over our mouths and shoot. We had to wet them, and there wasn't very much to wet them on the spur of the moment. I know some chaps dipped them in their tea. Some of them had a bit of water in their water bottle and poured it on. But a lot of us just dipped them straight in the latrines. It was the only thing to do, and it wasn't very pleasant. Oh, but it wasn't very pleasant. But, you know, in extremists, you you know, choice of that or die. Now, uh, Hawkins, he, he's really a determined young officer. He's inexperienced, but he, he's trying to keep his men uh, in place and firing into the cloud at the German infantry that will be following up. Uh, this is what he says. We were very soon enveloped in this thick, yellow, filthy cloud and could see nothing. We didn't really know whether the Germans were coming up behind it or not. So we just let fly with everything we had and went on shooting. I must have been lucky because it didn't seem to affect me as badly as it did my men. But even then, I didn't like it. So he was lucky that, I, I mean, he just must have been in a bit where there wasn't so much gas, I expect, because I think it's a fairly basic physiological uh, reaction and he must have just gotten less of it. Um, now, a lot of the Lancashire Fusiliers hadn't waited, had they? No, they simply made a run for safety. And frankly, Pete, who could blame them? Now, George Ashurst, he was in a, a in the reserve trench. So not in the front line. Be, no, and you're going to be George. And I Private am. George Ashurst, second Lancashire Fusilier, says... It's gas! It's coming over here! It looked like a brownish-green stuff coming. Not too thick. You could, you could see through it. 
These lads out of the front trench were on their way, jumping over the top of our heads. They were running, hopping it out of the gas, jumping across our trench all together and running away towards Eeps. Now, I want you to notice that's not what uh, Hawkins said happened. Uh, so no. it's obviously in some parts of the line, people stuck and others they didn't. Well, everybody was grabbing their handkerchiefs, coughing and spitting. One or two attempts to get up the back of the trench. And the officer was there with his revolver. Get back! Get back, you! Stand to! No sooner as he, as he stopped the fellow getting out of the trench there. And while he was doing that, there was a fellow nipping out here, running away. We all thought we'd had it. We're bloody poisoned now, we are. But we had to breathe it. It had to go in our lungs. It was nasty stuff to breathe. Coughing and spitting. We kept spitting it out. And yellow green stuff was coming up our throats. A shout came. Retire! I think it was a bloody soldier that shouted it. It was no one in authority. The officer must have thought it was official. I never saw what happened to him. I jumped up the back of the trench and I hopped it. They were scattering the place with machine gun bullets and shelling like hell. Shrapnel. A little piece hit me in the back of the neck. There was two men with me, us three together, running away to get away from the gas as far as we could. We walked and ran, stopped, trying to get a bit of a breath for a moment, for a minute rather. Then off again. We threw our equipment away, our rifles even. Threw the damn lot away. We didn't know whether they were attacking or not. We weren't even bothered. If he was coming after us, we didn't know and we didn't care. We got into Eeps. Frenchmen were dashing out, giving us salt and water, but, but we couldn't swallow it. It made no difference. It wouldn't go down our necks to make us sick. We couldn't drink it. This stuff kept coming up our throats. It was oozing out, greenish froth. Again, Gary, what an account. Incredibly and, descriptive, wasn't it? And some people might think, oh, no, what a coward. Well, I don't no, think... No, 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 no. Absolutely. They... I, I understand completely... And, and also, there's actually disadvantages in making a run for it, Pete, because the gas stays with them. As they're running, because following them in the wind is the gas, whereas rather bizarrely, if they stayed where they were at their posts in time, the gas would actually pass over them. Difficult, but got to, to, difficult to think yeah, logically in those circumstances. But can you imagine standing there and thinking, well, actually, if I stay here, the human reaction is to run. And I don't blame anybody for running. Also, if you stay, if you stay, you're going to be lucky to survive as well. Because, of course, the Germans are coming up behind it. Now, however, Victor Hawkins and a few others do stick it out. And one of them is, a, a, is Private John, Jackie he, uh, Lynn. Uh, now, that's what, remember in your account, you said, you, uh, being Hawkins, you saw Lynn dragging his machine gun out and setting it up on the parapet. And although he's almost overcome by chlorine gas, he sticks it out up there. He's firing, keeps on firing, even as the gas billows over him. And that must have helped check any German follow-up. But I don't know how much of a follow-up there was. Anyway, you're going to be uh, Victor Hawkins, Second Lieutenant Victor Hawkins again, who, who gives us a bit more about this. We're in that gas cloud about 15 minutes altogether. And then quite suddenly, one got a breath of fresh air. It was the most marvellous feeling, and one fairly sucked it in. At that moment, I turned round and I saw Jackie Lynn. He'd kept his gun going right the way through, and he was carried past me on a stretcher, blue in the face, dying. He actually died about five minutes later. I've never seen a chap blue like that. 
It was the most beastly thing to see. The effect of this gas was to form a sort of foamy liquid in one's lungs. A lot of men died pretty quickly. Others were soon down drowning from this beastly foam coming up from their lungs. Out of 250 men we started with at 5 o'clock, we were very soon down to about 40 or 50 men. Some were dead and some were dying and the others were on the ground. Unbelievable, unbelievable. Mm. And and Private John Lynn is awarded a, a posthumous VC for his uh, for his actions. His, uh, uh, I can't, what what courage that man had. Uh, there's very little. De- you, you notice it. There's no description about a German attack following up, and it's it's not even certain there is at that point. I I, I, I I've not looked into that too much. I, I'm going to though. Um, but the, again, what isn't it wonderful how those two accounts blend together the different human reactions and and just 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 setting the scene uh it's, it's quite incredible this is some of the value of all oral history is are, is every fact accurate about it no and it just demonstrates that you know two people in the same action can have two very different perspectives of what's going on absolutely uh, and it's and it's demonstrated very clearly there i mean jackie lynn um a number of years ago, I was looking at, at actions around Apes, and I think this is an action near what's called Mousetrap Farm. Um, and he, he was uh, taken back and buried in Vlamiting, but his, uh, his remains were, were basically disturbed by shell fire. But there is still a memorial stone to him, although it's, it's not where he was buried, um, in Vlamiting Cemetery. So you can still go and see... We'll have to have a look at that respects. next time we're in Eeps, if we ever get to Eeps again. If yeah. we ever do, yeah. Now, um, that, that's all. That, that's the last of the soldiers. It's, it's not. It, it, I think this has been a short but an incredibly powerful uh, set of, of, of quotes that we've, we've read today. And I, I think that's probably enough for people because uh, you get swa- almost emotionally swamped by just the power of these quotes. The battle continues to rage. Second Eeps is not over in a few days. And uh, it, what, what it's raging about over is, is minute, small, tactically, tactically significant bits of ground. Uh, some of them are just hillocks, aren't they? Or little bits of ridges, or poxy woods. But, but the, these are places whose names get etched in, in British history, Pete. There's deadly fighting around Hooge and Sanctuary Wood. And uh, thousands and thousands of British families are, are affected by these actions around Eeps. And and of course, uh, my family come from Durham, and this is did the attack that we've discussed on the uh, uh, by the fiftieth uh, div is is still ve- remembered by by many families uh, in the, in North, in Durham and uh, Northumberland. And the fighting doesn't die down officially. You know, the battles have official t- titles, and it doesn't die. It goes from twenty second of April to the thirty first of May, uh, and uh, and in that time we lose some sixty thousand casualties. So how many dead would that be, Pete? That's About roughly a third. third 20,000. 20, terrible. Uh, terrible. The Germans are estimated to have lost 35,000, but uh, uh, I never trust... Uh, you know your own side. You don't know the other side so well, do you? Uh, in, in a sense, uh, and that sounds to me like a British estimate. So, again, that's uh, dead, wounded and missing. Uh, do you think perhaps the, the British should have just abandoned the Ypres salient, Gary? Do you, what do you think? Well... Where would they go, Pete? And and there was very little room for remove uh, for manoeuvre. And by this time, there's an emotional investment into holding Eeps and the last corner of Belgium that's not under German control. And you can't ignore that. 
Is it like a, a British Verdun in a sense then? Absolutely. It's becoming a place of dread for British troops, but but we have to hold it. And and you, there's no if you go back, you can't. Where where is a defensible line behind it? As you said, uh, what about Haysbrook, the the huge railway junction that would be uncovered if you fell back? What about the Channel ports that are not far behind uh, Ypres? Uh, um, they have to hold it. But, they uh, have to, and it was understood. You know, they did understand the the dangers and difficulties of holding a salient. They understood that they were going to suffer casual, casualties just in the defence of it. But it's, um, it's a place of dread, though. By the end, but well, what what choice do they have now? Um, I, I hope you'll. I mean, I I think this this battle's quite interesting. It's the sacrifice of all these. We've looked at everybody, not everybody, but the the Canadians are new to the battlefield and they're they're doing well. The British are slogging on. Uh, We haven't mentioned the Belgians, but of course they're holding the left of the line beyond the French. The French taking the brunt of the early attack. And of course the Germans suffer losses as well. So it's good to remember. So have a look at the the, the uh, second battle of Ypres. It, it it's it's been interesting. And do go on the website uh, the Imperial War Museum and there all this oral history is there. Uh, the oral history was digitized. I I rec- you full because uh, we were joking about it early. The reason it's there is because the Western Front Association paid for the uh, the uh, the recordings to be digitized. Uh, and that that is why they're on the uh, the website, uh, thanks to the Western Front Association, and uh, and that's a, a fantastic thing they did because the the museum probably wasn't going to pay for it. Uh, it was a considerable financial investment by the WFA. So I have now a listen. I would add, Pete, you know, assuming that we ever get out of uh, uh, this lockdown and able to move freely, as soon as you're able to, it's very close. You can you know you can be uh, on the Channel Tunnel and in Eeps just over an hour later um, get there visit as Pete said you can you can uh, see uh, some of the the, uh, the sites that, that are commented on by uh, soldiers like um, George Hashest and uh, well, obviously from- it's re- it's it's rebuilt, but uh, it is it is an incredible place. And for me, and and just as a, a little homage, uh, uh, have a look at the names of Jackie Oliver and Bob Young, and just look and think about those lads lying there with their legs off, with their bones just protruding from the the mess of their legs, and uh, and that awful awful memory of uh, a man I knew, Jack Dorgan, straightening the legs by just touching the bones. Uh, I mean, it's too horrible to think about. So, so for me, and for just just have a look at their names uh, under First, Seventh Northumberland Fusiliers, and just have a think about just those two little stories, and then look at the rest of the list of names on the Menin Gate, and think about what all that means. It's and not also a matter the of nations, Pete, that are represented. You've got the uh, the Indian Memorial there. You've got a lot of Indian names. If you walk round to Rampart Cemetery, you've even got Maoris. Um, so, you know, it, it truly was a world war. And on that rather more sombre note than usual, thanks thanks for, for helping me with this, Gary, and uh, I'm sure you're grateful for my assistance. I'm oh, very grateful, That Pete. wasn't very sombre, was it? Cheers, Pete. I've fallen at the last. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?